I think in the Western world we have an ambivalent view toward miracles. On the one hand, we are skeptical of miracles. We are products of the Enlightenment, you know, reason, science. You know, these are sources of truth in the West. And so there's not a lot of room for the unexplained, the miraculous in the Western modern mind. And so, so when it comes to miracles, there's kind of that response, which is this sort of knee-jerk skepticism. This can't be real. And then on the other end of that, I think we can become sort of fixated on or a little bit even obsessed with miracles when we think about our lives of faith. We want to see them. Why haven't I seen a miracle personally? We might view miracles as something that God only does for people he really loves or he's really happy with. You know, we we think miracles are maybe something, the super spiritual experience. And so we might find ourselves really seeking after them. I think this is what pop culture expressions of religion are all about when you see in films and you know tv anytime uh faith someone's faith is is being depicted it's often like this pursuit of miracles right if i could just you know see god act in a very specific personal way in my life an undeniable miraculous experience then i would know god is real and i would have hope in my life god just show me a sign it's that whole thing um i think that's just kind of in the air in our culture so it's those two ideas it's like this skepticism, but also this fixation on them. And there are some churches, some church traditions too, that really focus on the experience of the miraculous. And, and so this is a really important question for us to, to think about and reflect on. And I think one of the sources of confusion is that when we read the Bible, it just seems like miracles are happening all the time. Right? Like from beginning to end, it's like public miracles are just happening all the time. And, and we look at that and we look at our lives and we're like, gosh, is, like, does God still do this? Uh, you know, I don't see this anymore. Um, but we have to remember that the biblical events, you know, they took place over hundreds of years in all these different places. And so th- those very public miracles we read about in Scripture, they were, they were farther apart than you might imagine because we're reading kind of a condensed version And so it wasn't the case that in the biblical world, miracles were just happening all the time in full view of everyone. I think that's a misconception. I think many, many people, most people in both the Old and New Testament era went about their lives never seeing firsthand something we would say is a miracle. And they just lived out their life of faith. And that was their experience. But if we have this misconception that miracles used to just always be happening and everybody saw them and now it's not anymore, we can sort of wonder why that's a, a disconnect there. Um, but one of the questions that you all submitted, the basis of today's message was this, are miracles still possible? Are miracles still possible? Here's the answer. You ready? Yep. They are still possible. That's it. We can go home. Um, They are real because we believe in an all-powerful creator, God, and he can do whatever he likes. And uh, so whatever he has done in the past, he's certainly capable of doing again. Uh, Miracles are real, but we have to align our expectations about them with scripture. Um, And I'm going to give you a few examples kind of toward the end of the message of miracles that are happening today, like modern miracles that are very inspiring. But before we get to those, I think it's important that we really unpack this question. And I think we have to do it um, by looking at a few kind of foundational questions that are underneath it. So the kind of three angles that I think we need to explore are this. 
What should we think about miracles? How would we respond if we experienced a miracle? And what kinds of miracles are happening today? I think these three angles will help us have a sense of what Scripture teaches and and, and have our hearts and minds aligned with that. So what should we think about miracles? How would we respond if we experienced a miracle? And what kinds of miracles are happening today? Um, Just as we have throughout this series, we're not going to be walking through like one passage of Scripture in depth, uh, which we typically do. We're going to jump around a little bit. So if you're taking notes... Um, just, I would encourage you to just write down the scripture references. So if you want to go back later and read them or review them, you can. Um, but before we get into it, I do think it's important to define miracle. Um, because obviously anything God does that only he can do, we might think of as a miracle. It's, it's, you know, spiritual transformation. Someone, someone coming to a place of faith in Christ and, and giving their life over to him, yielding their life, that, that we could argue is a miracle. That is a supernatural act that only God can do. He is in the business of transformation. Anybody coming to a saving faith in Christ is a miracle. Somebody growing in their faith is a miracle. We could argue that. But for the purpose of this message, uh, I'm talking about kind of classic idea of miracles, right? Healings, Jesus walking on water, resurrections, uh, God speaking to people in dreams, these kind of almost like the suspension of what we think of as the normal laws of nature. That's what we're talking about today when we talk about miracles. So let's think about this first question for a moment. What should we think about miracles? What should we think about it? I think the way to understand this best is to look at Jesus' ministry because he gave us a very particular vantage point on the miraculous. And it's it's not what we would expect. And it's, it actually kind of seems a little contradictory. He gave us kind of two lenses. One lens is that the miracles he performed led people to faith in him. They, they proved his identity, who he was. They were important to lead people to faith in him. So that was one lens he gave us. But the other lens he gave us was that miracles on their own don't guarantee that someone will get into a saving and growing relationship with Christ. So Jesus did miracles to prove his identity while simultaneously insisting we should not need them to believe in him. And I want to illustrate this with a few examples. Uh, You may remember the kind of first public miracle he did was um, he turned water into wine at this wedding in the city of uh, the town of Cana. And um, we read this in John 2.11 right after this. It says... uh, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this miracle that he did was a testimony to who Jesus is, and it led his disciples to believe in him. It says he revealed his glory by doing this. Um, The word for miracle in the New Testament actually literally means sign. And, And so here it's translated pretty literally this is the first of the signs through which jesus revealed his glory and that's important to understand from the new testament standpoint that a miracle is a sign and and so what that means is that uh, jesus's miracles were not just to impress it wasn't like magic for magic's sake his miracles were signs something miraculous for a purpose to point to something That's what they all were, is signs pointing to who he is. And actually, at the end of John's gospel, 
he, as the narrator, kind of talks about why he wrote his gospel. And look what he said. John 20, 30, 31. This is John as the narrator writing. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. That's interesting, isn't it? But these are written, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is telling us that part of his purpose in writing the gospel, the, the written account of Jesus' ministry, was to, to, to record these signs that Jesus did that pointed people to him, that led people to faith in him. So this is just a snapshot of kind of the first part of, of what Jesus taught about miracles, is they point to him, and they are meant to lead us to faith in him. Um, and people believed in Jesus because of these miracles. But there's that second lens that Jesus gave us that's really important for us to, to look at, and it's that we shouldn't trust in the miracles and the signs too much or think that they will guarantee a, a, an unshakable belief in God because in and of themselves, they won't. Let me show you some examples. John 12, 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. There were people who knew Jesus, saw many of the signs he did, and did not believe in him. One time, Jesus told this parable. I won't put it up here. Um, it's a little bit too long to kind of dive into, but just the gist of it is that when Jesus told this parable, it's a parable of a man who dies, and he's, he's in uh, eternal life now, but he's separated from God. He's separated from God by this chasm. He can't get across the chasm, and he realizes he's going to be separated from God forever. And he makes this appeal and says, hey, God, could you send somebody back from the dead to warn my family who are still alive that all this is true so that they'll believe and they'll avoid this fate. They won't be separated from me for eternity or from you for eternity like I am. And so he's asking for a miracle to be shown to his still living family. And the response that the man gets in the parable is this in John 16, 31. If they, that's the family still living, do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And so Jesus was making this point. If Scripture, if Moses and the prophets, which is often how Jesus uh, describes Scripture, if that's not enough to lead people to encounter God, they're not ultimately going to be convinced in a lasting way just by a miracle because their heart isn't really open to hearing God. If it was, his living word would be speaking to them and resonating as they engaged with God's word. When Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, he had some disciples who wouldn't believe it unless they saw it. Like, I've got to see it in person. Uh, Thomas was one of them. And, and finally, he does see Jesus in the flesh, resurrected. And look what Jesus said to him, John twenty twenty nine. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus was saying, don't put all your trust in these observable miracles. It would have been better for you to have believed without having to see me physically. And even some of his disciples who saw him raised physically still doubted. Look at this, Matthew 28. This is right before the part that's called the Great Commission where Jesus ascends into heaven. 
It says this, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's right. There were people who saw Jesus alive, followed him for three plus years, knew that he was dead, saw him alive again, saw him perform miracles post-resurrection, and still doubted. An experience of the miraculous, they can be signs pointing to God, and they're meant to be, but we have the capacity to brush them aside and, and, or just explain them away. And so in and of themselves, they are not going to guarantee us a certain enduring, vibrant faith. So Jesus is giving us this dual picture of what we should think about miracles, and it's really these two things. Miracles can lead people to faith in Christ, and they have, but also miracles on their own do not guarantee a saving and growing relationship with Christ. And I think it's really important to have that perspective as we think about miracles. Um, Jesus, yes, he did miracles to prove his identity. He also warned not to depend on them too much as the foundation of our faith. So let's continue with this second part of, of the question. Uh, how would we respond if we experienced a miracle? I mean, if we really saw something happen that was unexplainable other than God's intervention, how would we respond? Um, the first response is, I think, what most people assume would happen. You know, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, maybe this would be the thing that leads you to, or at least to deepen your faith in Christ if you already have a relationship with him. And, and we saw that all in Jesus's ministry, people coming to faith because of the miracles. Um, so that does happen. And I think most of us assume that's basically the default response. A miracle happens and people have faith, done deal. But there are other responses to the miraculous. So that's the first one. Another potential response is we could believe God is real but not love him. I mean, think of the angels who turned away from God. They know who God is. They know how powerful he is. Glimpsing God's power doesn't guarantee that we will love him or give our lives to him or yield our hearts to him. God is not interested in us just admitting he's real. He wants to draw us into a real relationship with him. So that's a possibility. There's another possibility of how to respond to the miraculous. We could become devoted to the miracles instead of to God. This has happened. So we turn the miracle and the, or the pursuit of miracles into an idol and actually push God to the side. This has happened in the biblical period. It happens now. Let me give you one example. Uh, in the Old Testament, you may remember there was a, a season when the people of Israel were wandering in the desert before they uh, came to the promised land, and they did not like this experience of being out in the desert for all those years, and they're complaining to God, and they're cursing God, and worshiping other gods, and, and there was a moment where um, they were just complaining and cursing God, and so God allows some snakes to go into their camp, and some people start getting bitten, and these are like venomous snakes. People are going to die. And so Moses pleads for help, and this is what happens. This is in Numbers chapter 21. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. 
Then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now that's a miracle, and that's a, that's a strange image, isn't it? It's like this little metal snake, and they put it on a pole. Someone gets bit by a real snake, and they're like, and they look at the bronze one, and the venom is not going to hurt them anymore. This is a miracle. Um, look at this bronze snake, and you'll live. But the problem is this. When the real snakes were gone, somebody thought, we should keep that snake. <laughs> I think we've got room in the tabernacle boxes. We'll put it in there. We'll keep it. And in the following generations, people began to worship it instead of the God who did the miracle. And so we find 700 years later when King Hezekiah comes to the throne and he's getting rid of all this idol worship in Israel, look what he has to do, 2 Kings 18.4. Hezekiah broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. They worshipped the miracle, not the God who did the miracle. Now, you and I, I imagine, are probably not tempted to worship a little metal statue in our house or some other thing like that, a knick-knack. But we can idolize miracles in another way. And I think the way it looks is this. We, we can come to a place of feeling like, unless we see a miracle or personally experience an undeniable miracle in our life or the life of somebody we know, then God isn't real or he doesn't love us or he's not involved in our life. He doesn't care. And that's all a lie. He is involved. He does love us. He does care. Miracles are not a litmus test for the Spirit's presence and work in our life. But we can get to that place of thinking that. I mean, I don't know if you know this, most of Jesus' disciples were martyred. So they certainly would be a group of people that the Spirit was powerfully working through and and involved in their life. And if there was ever anybody we might think is deserving of a miraculous deliverance from being martyred, it would be Jesus' disciples. But they were martyred. They lost their lives. So how can you tell if you might be idolizing miracles a little bit, I think if you feel that the absence of a miracle in your life or you've prayed for one and it didn't happen leads you to become cynical or resentful toward God or doubt his existence. Because if you get to that place, it means that to some extent, you're no longer wanting God for himself, but for what you think he should do for you. That's a very normal and common place to get to. And look, I I do want to say it's good and fine to pray for miracles. I mean, God does miracles. He invites us to pray. He desires to hear our prayers and our prayer requests. Yes, but the truth is miracles don't know us. Miracles don't lead us. Miracles don't give us purpose. Miracles don't love us unconditionally. God does. We are not called to know, follow, and worship miracles. We're called to know, follow, and worship Jesus. So it's it's just aligning our minds and our hearts with what we observe in Jesus' ministry in his life. That miracles are important. They can happen. God has used them to lead people to faith in him. But we cannot idolize them. We cannot view them as the the be-all, end-all revelation of whether God is real or involved in our lives. 
But I do want to talk, thirdly, this last piece, about what kinds of miracles are happening today. Because they are. So, so what, what are happening today? Um, I think a lot of us probably feel like, well, where are they? <laughs> I, I mean, I haven't seen any. Um, is God out of the miracle business? Again, I think we have to manage our expectations. It, because just because you may not have personally seen one or observed one, it doesn't mean they're not happening. Let, let me put it this way. Do you know how old somebody is when they have lived for a billion seconds? 31.7 years. So when you're 31.7, congratulations, you've lived a billion seconds. A billion's a big number, isn't it? A billion seconds, 31.7 years. So imagine you're that 31.7-year-old, and you're looking at your life, and you're looking at a billion seconds you've lived, and you're thinking, I haven't seen any miracles in these billion seconds. But in each one of those billion seconds, God was working for that same second in the lives of billions of other people. Your billion seconds weren't the only billion seconds happening. And so your billion seconds are precious to God. He loves you. He knows them. He's intimately involved, but they're not the only billion seconds that are happening. And so just because you haven't seen one in your sliver of what God's doing doesn't mean they're not happening. It doesn't prove that miracles aren't real. So I think one of the things we have to do is disconnect this idea that, you know, um, a miracle equals God loves us. And then if we, if we don't see one or, or we prayed for one and it doesn't happen, then God doesn't love us or he's not involved. That's just simply not true um, from a biblical perspective. We can't put God in a box. We can't figure out a formula for how he does this stuff. Sometimes people pray desperately for miracles, whole groups of people, whether it's someone who's ill or something else going on, and, and the miracle happens. Sometimes it does not. Sometimes people don't even ask for a miracle, and it happens. Sometimes God does miracles, and we don't even realize it. Or he does the miracle, and we don't acknowledge it as a miracle. We explain it away with naturalistic explanations. I, I think a great example is uh, in the healing area. There are lots of things today that through medicine and um, healthcare we can be cured of and, and you know, keep our lives because of where things are. 2,000 years ago, for that to be true, it had to be a miracle. And so we basically respond and say, well, God was working through this miracle here. He's not really working anymore. That's just science. God's involved in both. If you believe in a sovereign creator, ruler of the universe, in, in some cases, it's a miracle where he has to do it. And in some cases, he leads, you know, the progression of history to a place where this can now be true. And he works in that way. So I, I think he does miracles a lot of times that don't register for us as miracles. We don't acknowledge them. But look, this is God's domain. We don't, we don't understand everything he's thinking and doing. But I do want to say there is one discernible pattern of miracles that we can point to that he's do, he has done from the early church era and is doing today and has done ever since. And it's miracles that occur at the threshold of a place or a, a, a group of people who has never heard of Jesus before. It, when, when, there is, when the gospel is breaking new ground, when God is reaching out to people who've never heard of him and wouldn't be able to respond without some sort of miraculous intervention. For example, if there's a language barrier or there's persecution happening from the government or there's no access to scripture 
in this country or places like that. In places like that, miracles happen all the time. They, they did in the New Testament era. They are still happening today. Uh, we don't live in an area like that. I mean, there are plenty of people who don't know Jesus in our community and in this country. But as a nation, that's not where we are. We have access to scripture and churches. I mean, just, uh, we're just richly blessed in that sense. Um, And so we don't live in an area that is that frontier space. Um, Let's let's look at the the model for this. In Acts chapter 2, this is the day of Pentecost, when... um, The Holy Spirit arrives and supernaturally indwells and empowers the disciples for the mission of the church that's going to begin to happen. Um, It says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, Because each one heard their own language being spoken. So this moment, this day of Pentecost, right before this explosion of the church, is is God supernaturally enabling his disciples to speak real other languages. This is not like they're just saying stuff that people don't understand or gibberish or something. This is like if God had a mission for you, so he, he just downloaded into you the ability to speak like Icelandic. Because he has a job for you. You're going to go share Christ with, you know, I don't know, Bjork. She's the only Icelandic person I know. Um, <laughs> but that's what happened on the day of Pentecost was God doing something miraculous for the gospel to be able to jump to these other people groups. And it wouldn't be able to because of these language barriers. And you see this throughout the rest of the New Testament as the church spread out. Over and over, God does these miraculous things to break through these barriers. There's healings, there's jail cell doors opened, there's supernatural protection, there's um, language barriers that are transcended. And this kind of thing happens today. When you, when you zero in on these parts of the world where the gospel of Jesus is breaking in new ground in an area, this stuff happens. And it's incredible. I want to give you just a few examples and uh, some Uh, books if you want to go read about this stuff that I think would be really uh, inspiring to you in your journey of faith. So the first is Andrew uh, Vanderbilt. Uh, He's known more popularly as Brother Andrew. Some of you may know his story. Amazing story. This, uh, during the Cold War, uh, he was a a, a Dutch missionary. Uh, He felt that his mission was to bring the scriptures into the Soviet Union, which was not allowed. It was illegal, he could be arrested or worse, but they didn't have access to the scriptures. They couldn't, they couldn't know God through his word, and he just was burdened by this. And so he got his little VW bug, and he was like, I'm going to fill this thing up with Bibles. I'm just going to make a run on the border, and I'm just going to do it. I'm going to trust that God's going to make a way. So he's in his car. He comes up to this checkpoint, and he's got all these Bibles in his car, and he's watching the line of cars in front of him, and car after car, same thing happens. The, the soldiers come up, they make the driver get out of the car, and they empty the, car, the car of its entire contents. And they're doing this for every single car. And so he's in this line, and he's thinking, I can't get out of this. And he prays. He says, Lord, there's, there's nothing I can do to, to avoid what's going to happen. You're going to have to blind them to the Bibles in my car. 
And, and in a show of faith, he actually, he kind of had them hidden. He pulls them out and lays them in plain sight. And he just prays and says, God, you're going to have to do this. And he gets up to the front and he rolls down his window and he hands the guard his papers and he starts to open his door to get out because everybody is. And the guard just kind of leans into the door and keeps it shut and just goes. And he had looked inside, he didn't see it. I mean, God answered his prayer. He blinded him to that. And then he had this ministry of running Bibles into the Soviet Union for all these years. It's an incredible story. God's Smuggler, that's the book about his story. So I would encourage you, if that's interesting to you, to go read that. But that's an example. God and his word, it needed to break through that barrier. And so he made it happen. Another example, uh, a story is um, Nabil Qureshi. I won't go into the details of his story, but... um, Suffice to say, he was a devout Muslim, uh, made it his mission to out-argue Christians about, you know, whose religion was right, and God broke through to him in miraculous ways through these dreams and just completely changed his life. And um, he told his, his amazing story um, in this book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. I highly recommend it. Um, God reached out to him in miraculous ways uh, when there was no other way it could have happened. Um, so God broke that barrier. Another example, some of you may be familiar with this one. Um, this goes back to the 1950s. Elizabeth Elliot uh, and her husband Jim and a, a number of other missionaries moved to Ecuador to share the gospel with a, a tribe that never heard of Jesus before. And, and early on in that mission, uh, Jim Elliot and four of the other men um, were killed by that tribe. And so there were five widows. And um, a couple years later, she's invited to live with that tribe, and a number of them end up coming to Christ. It's just this, like, amazing story. Um, So her book is um, Through the Gates of Splendor, and miracles abound in that story. Um, And then lastly, on a more personal level, um, our church planters that we support in India, as you, many of you know, we support two church planters in India, and... um, I'm convinced there's no place on earth that's more like the New Testament world than India. It's a, a polytheistic religion, temples, idols, uh, everywhere, statues to deities. I mean, it's very much like the Greco-Roman environment of the New Testament world. And, um, and you just see God working through these churches and these church planners in the way that he worked in the book of Acts. In, in that environment as the church was spreading. These church leaders will tell you stories. You meet them, and they'll tell you stories of exorcisms and miraculous healings, and my wife was going to die, and she's in the hospital, and then Jesus healed her. Or the government's been trying to drill a well for, you know, two years. They can't find water anywhere, and then we just prayed, and we got water, and it's better than anybody imagined, and now we're providing clean water for this whole village in the name of Jesus. And it's just incredible to hear their stories. They literally train their incoming pastors on things like exorcisms and healings and things like that because it just happens all the time. And that is the kind of place, again, the frontier of the gospel breaking in fresh territory. I do wonder, though, I've thought about this the last couple weeks in preparing for this message. You know, why don't we see this kind of thing here? Why don't we see it more? I mean, obviously, individual people experience miracles and things happen. Um, but, but why don't we experience that kind of thing uh, on, like, a broader scale? And I wonder if it's because we have the Word. 
we have God's word. We, we have an almost embarrassing amount of access to it through the apps. I mean, every type of Bible you could imagine we have. Um, and we take it for granted, I think. Too busy to read it, too skeptical to believe it, too distracted to apply it, too well off to think we need God. Not that we don't have access to God, but we might not care much about the means by which he has given to us to know him. Um, And so, you know, we have his scriptures, we have his word, and we're like, yeah, yeah, that's fine and good, but God, show me something. You know, do a miracle, something specific to me. I need my personal revelation for you to be real. And I just wonder if we might have slipped into the thinking of the man in that parable I told you about from Luke 16 of, you know, God saying to him, okay, if, if you can't know me through my word, a miracle is not going to help. I just wonder if that's sort of where we are, um, if our hearts are really open to knowing God in the way he has given us to know him. Um, I want to close, though, by talking about the two most important miracles that have ever happened, and they're miracles for all of us. It's a baby born in Bethlehem, God in the flesh, and the second one is that child grown up, crucified, and resurrected. Two miracles that made it possible for us to know God personally, to experience forgiveness, salvation, to know God as his child, and to have the hope of eternal life. You know, we don't worship or, or hope for miracles for miracles' sake. We hope in the one who does these things. We're not meant to look for miracles or demand miracles from God. Do you remember the Pharisees, Jesus' main opponents? They kept saying, show us a sign. Prove who you say you are. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Who do you think you are? And he said to them, you're going to have one sign. It's the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. I'm going to be in the tomb for three days. The one sign you need, Jesus was telling them, is my death and resurrection. That's it. That's the sign you're going to get. The only sign that mattered, according to Jesus, was his death and resurrection. You remember that bronze serpent that the Israelites hung on to and worshipped? They were worshipping the miracle, not the God behind the miracle who saved them. And Jesus actually makes this exact point that the serpent was a pale, powerless shadow of the real deal. Look what Jesus said in John 3. Jesus said this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, that's himself, must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life miracles when they happen are not just God flexing his muscles they're not a metric of how much God loves us Really, at the end of the day, this is what they are. Miracles are signs that point us to Christ. That's what they are. They point us to a person who knows us, loves us, and held nothing back to bring us into relationship with him. Miracles are signs that point us to Christ. You know, this whole series, every big question that we've explored ultimately leads us to Jesus. 
Because who Jesus is and what he did for us is the answer to all of life's deepest questions, all of life's most profound pains, every confusion, every struggle, every moment of wondering, every season of wandering. If we look to Christ, if we seek him out with an open heart, we will not be let down. We will find answers or at least become comfortable not knowing all of them because we know the one who does have all of them. Our trust is not in having all the answers. Our trust is not in miracles. Our trust is in the one that they point to, which is Jesus. He is the one we trust in, and he is worthy of our trust.